Okay, so we are going to start in the Epistle to the Hebrews today. And this is... Uh, <clears throat> before we can get into chapter 1, we've got to do something that, that, that's, that's more textbook-like than I like to do, but we just have to do it. And so you're going to have to bear with me. For those of you who might want to go to seminary someday, you might like this. For others of you that don't care for seminary, this will be something new to you. But you've got to start a book this way. Because you have to give the background, and especially in this epistle to the Hebrews, is because if we don't have a context for this, it just some, sometimes seems disjointed. And so there were five New Testament books. And by the way, um, uh, I'm going to be, be reading today a lot out of a, out of a commentary by Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's a Messianic uh, uh, scholar, a scholar in, in, in uh, Hebrew Christian uh, uh, apologetics and, and biblical studies, and I'll be reading a lot from, from his commentary. I don't use commentaries when I teach. Uh, I will often read several commentaries in background, but what I try to do is I try to take the scripture, the text, and see what it says, get from commentaries just the lay of the land, but then pray and seek God for what is the message for us in a particular passage. That's normally what I try to do. But we have to have the background in the epistle to the Hebrews. So there, in the New Testament, there were five of the New Testament books were written to uh, Jewish believers. These are people who were born Jews and they became believers in Jesus the Messiah. Now, the amazing thing is that people will say to me, I'm amazed at you that you can be a Jew and be a Christian. And I'm amazed that Gentiles can be Christians. It really amazes me. Why should Gentiles want to be Christians? Because the New Testament is so Jewish. If you read it, it is so Jewish in what it was saying. All the original apostles, they were all Jewish. All the believers were Jewish. It wasn't until you get into Acts chapter 9 that you start seeing Gentiles come into the church. It was all Jewish. So if you think that, oh, this is a... A, a, uh, a Gentile thing. It is not. It is a very much started as a Jewish thing, and then the Gentiles started coming in, and the Jews didn't even know how to handle them coming in. They thought they had a big conference, which is talked about in Acts chapter 15, and in this conference they had to decide, do Gentiles have to first become Jewish before they can become Christians? You say, oh, that's so silly. No, it's not silly. When you look at the pattern of what's there, they were really confused about this. And thank goodness for you that, that they said, no, you didn't have to become Jewish first. You could just go straight into believing on the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. You could just go straight into doing that. And that came because of a conference that was held. And we have the minutes of that conference in, in, in Acts chapter 15. Well, there are five books that were written to Jewish believers in the New Testament, those five are Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, and Jude. So, and, and uh, um, not that, that Gentiles can't learn from them. It is just that you, it helps us to understand the context of what was happening here. So, this book was written to the Jewish believers around Jerusalem, not in Jerusalem, but in Judea, which is the province that in, embodies Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is, is here and Judea is around it in, in this Judean area. And they were undergoing tremendous persecution, not yet to the point of martyrdom, but tremendous persecution. And so this book was written to begin to speak with them. And we'll talk 
some about what was happening. These were not Jews in the diaspora, meaning Jews that were in the faraway lands, Jews that were in Rome or Jews that were in Antioch. These were Jews that were in the territory of Israel and more specifically, directly around Jerusalem. So, who is the author of of, uh, uh, the epistle to the Hebrews? And it's not known. It is unknown who the author is because the author did not identify himself. Sometimes Paul would... When he was writing books, he would say, I, Paul, or Peter would specify himself. In this book, he did not talk about who he was. He did not mention his name, but the readers knew very well who he was. He was familiar to the readers. So there's been many people put forward as to people who possibly wrote this. In fact, one author was arguing strenuously that it was Priscilla, that that, uh, uh, this woman that's talked about in the book of Acts, who knew the scriptures very well, that it was actually written by a woman named Priscilla. But that's been been refuted because in Hebrews 11.32, the author uses a masculine participle to describe himself. So, so, so uh, uh, that's been, been, been dealt with by scholars. And what I'm doing is I'm just quoting to you things that I've learned from the scholars. This is not, I'm not a scholar in, 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 in Bible stuff, so I'm dependent upon them, uh, upon them for this sort of thing. Uh, uh, so the author, though, had intimate knowledge of these people. He knew these people very well. And he himself was a second-generation Jewish believer, meaning that he did not see Jesus himself and learn these things, he learned from the apostles or other people who had witnessed this. It is likewise with the people in, 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 uh, uh, in this Judean area. They were not first generation believers, they were second generation believers themselves. And this is indicated in, in, uh, in several parts, but in, in, in uh, um, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, he, they indicate that they heard it from the eyewitnesses themselves. So they themselves heard the message from eyewitnesses, so they were second generation believers. We would be like, like uh, you know, thousandth generation believers or something. I mean, so, so, so it's just very different. But they were second generation believers. So who are the readers? The readers I just told you, they were also second generation believers around Judea. And we know that they were not Jews from the diaspora. And we know that because what was happening is due to the persecution that was occurring, they were being tempted to go back into Judaism. Because their rationale was this. Look, the persecution is getting so hot and heavy. Why don't we just say, hey, you know, we're Jews. Go back under Judaism. And then once the persecution is over, we can become believers once again. We can, we can start following the Messiah once again. And this is just a way of convenience for us. And what the author is warning them is he's warning them against this. Now, it was easy for the Judeans to go back under the Levitical system because Jerusalem was right there. Jerusalem was a couple of miles away. Jerusalem may have been 10 miles away, 20 miles away, but not more than that, not more than 20 miles away. So they were right around Jerusalem they could easily be drawn back into this. It's very much like our lives. When we make a decision to follow Jesus, it's not always easy for everybody. And people wonder, you know, it was just so much easier before I was a Christian. And I'm like, you are going to make a big mistake. You want to go back into the world? You want to see what a taskmaster can be like? You go back into the world and see what you're going to go through. So, If they had been Jews in the diaspora, there never would have been a draw to go back under the Levitical practices of offering up things in the temple. 
And so, so we know that it was Jews, second generation Jews who were living right around there. And they were believers. They were believers in Jesus the Messiah. And how do we know that? Because in the book of Hebrews, for example, in 3.1 and in, in 3.12, he, he calls them brethren. In 6.9, he calls them beloved. In 3.1, they're called partakers of the heavenly calling, which is unique to believers. In 3.14, they're partakers of Christ or of the Messiah. So over and over again, he refers to them as if they are believers. They are not unbelievers. Some people think because of the warnings that are given in this book that they must be unbelievers. No, they're very much believers. Uh, also, that, that they have been believers for a long time because of what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. He says, you've been believers for a long time. By now you ought to be teachers, but... You're not teachers, you're, you're, you're like babies. You have need of, 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 of milk and, and, and not solid food. So in other words, they were believers, but they had not grown very much in the Lord. They were wavering in their faith. This is talked about in, in chapter 10, verse 32 through 38. And they were known to the author. And this is talked about in 13, 19, and 23. Chapter 13, verse 19 and 23. They were known to the author. And this is why the author didn't make a big deal about naming himself. They were known to the author. We talked about the location, where they were. They were not in the diaspora. They were there locally. And so they were getting drawn back into this. The date. What is the date? It is estimated to be between 64 and 66 A.D. Now, how do scholars know this? Let me just read this for you so you get an understanding of what scholars go through to date one of these manuscripts. So sometimes, like, like uh, uh, we're given in the, in the Gospel according to Luke, it tells us exactly who was king, what year they were king, or in such and such a year when a census was going to be taken, and then boom, you could pinpoint the years. We don't have anything like that in the book of Hebrews, in the epistle to the Hebrews. So there's no date given. But here, here's what the, 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 first, the first point is. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Rome, wrote a letter in A.D. 96 in which he quoted from the book of Hebrews. So this shows it was written sometime before A.D. 96. Second, in, in chapter 13, verse 23, the author mentions Timothy. This shows that the book had to be written after A.D. 50, the year that Paul led Timothy to the Lord. That's in Acts 16, verse 1 through 3. Third, it was written before Timothy died, for the writer talks about Timothy in the present tense in chapter 13, verse 23. Fourth to, the book, uh, fourth, to the book of Hebrews, the recipients were second generation believers in chapter 2, verse 3, and they had believed long enough to be teachers in 5, 11 through 14. Fifth, when the author writes the sacrificial, talking about the sacrificial system, he talks about it in the present tense. In chapter 7, verse 8, chapter 8, chapter 10, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 11, he's writing in the present tense. So the sacrificial system is still going on. We know that the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans, so it has to be before A.D. 70. So you see how they begin to narrow this down. Had to be after the conversion of Timothy in 50, had to be before A.D. 70 now. Uh, um, six, in three, chapter 3, verse 17, the author implies it had been almost 40 years since the crucifixion, which occurred in A.D. 30. Seventh, in chapter 12, verse 26 through 29, he makes statements of a shaking in the land, which had already begun. He implies that the seeds of the Jewish revolt were, were being sown. 
The revolt began in AD 66, but there was a two-year prelude during which there were a series of attacks against the Jews from AD 64 to 66. And it is based on these particular times, knowing the year of the Jewish revolt, knowing that it had to be before the onslaught, before the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem, that, that, that all this took place. And that's what dates it between 64 and 66 AD. So how about the historical background? The author uses the Old Testament over and over again as a proof text. And the Old Testament passages seal the deal for them. As soon as he mentions what it says in the Old Testament and gives them those proof texts from the Old Testament, that satisfies it. That seals the deal. It's very much like in this class. When I talk about the Scriptures, I show what the New Testament says. That's what it says. What are you going to do? I mean, that's what the text says. We take that because for us, the New Testament has already been validated. But sometimes there will be young believers in here or unbelievers in here, and they'll come up to me afterward, and it's a very standard thing. They'll say, you use the Bible to validate the Bible. And I say, yes, I do, because we've already validated the Bible. But if you want to have the Bible validated, that has been done, or done over and over and over again. And we can certainly go through that to look at the surrounding texts that validate the truth of the scriptures. So it's not the, the scriptures themselves having to validate the scriptures. But we receive the New Testament as a valid text. These Jews were receiving it if they had not been Jews then the Old Testament would have been meaningless to them. When I talk to a Jew who's not a believer in Jesus and I start quoting the New Testament, I've even had them say to me, what you just said means absolutely nothing to me. And we would be like, no, that makes sense to me. That means nothing to them. That to them is not a proof text. I've got to go to the prophet Isaiah and start showing them texts in there. Isaiah 53, about, about the crucifixion of the Lord that's talked about in Isaiah 53. And show them that to begin to validate what the New Testament says because for them, the validating proof text is the Old Testament. What he does is he takes examples from the Old Testament. So, for example, he'll take Esau. Esau was somebody who, who sold his birthright and then resought it with tears, the scripture said, and it was too late. He couldn't get it back. And he uses that to say, look, if you are in Christ and you have decided to drift away and not go and, and not walk with Christ, you can't then all of a sudden drift away and then think you're going to come back and have it all go well for you. Your salvation is not going to be lost. Esau's salvation is not lost, but his blessing was lost. When he lost his birthright, he lost his blessing. I see the same sort of thing in, in, in international students. International students will often come to the Lord, but they are afraid to get baptized because what does baptism do? It seals the deal. It seals the deal. And this is why in the book of Acts, on, when they were, when, when, uh, in, in the book of Acts in chapter 2, Peter is preaching and they finally say, what shall we do? He says, believe and be baptized and be baptized and be saved. He even goes on to say, save yourselves. Well, baptism, you can't save yourselves. But baptism, he says, you do this step of baptism. You see this with international students. They're afraid to take this step. And this is an absolutely critical step. 
because they themselves realize once you are baptized, this is a statement, this is a line in the sand, and this is why I say if you have not been baptized, you need to be baptized. This is a line in the sand, and this is what was put before them in Acts chapter 2, this need to be baptized. So he uses this example of... of um, of Esau, who sought it with tears, but he lost out on blessing. What you will lose out if you drift away and then think that you can come back, you lose out on tremendous blessing both here on earth and in the kingdom to come. You lose out on tremendous blessing, and that's what he's teaching them in, in the epistle of Hebrews. But they will not lose their salvation, but they will lose out protection on earth and blessing in the future kingdom just like Esau. He then goes on and he takes from the book of Exodus and he uses the example of the priesthood over and over again, how we have a better high priest. He is not comparing that which is good to that which is bad. He is comparing that which is good to that which is better. The Old Testament covenant was given by God. It was a good thing. But then he says there is now a better covenant founded upon better promises. Not that the other one was bad, but there is one who was better. And he talks about the son being better. He goes on and he, he uses a lot from the book of Numbers. Well, what happened in the book of Numbers? And we covered this a lot because we just covered the book of Joshua. And what happened is in, in, in Numbers chapter 13, Moses sent spies into the land. And he said, go spy out the land. He sent 12 spies into the land, one from each tribe, a leader from each tribe. Among those spies was Joshua and Caleb, were two of the 12. The 12 came back and they all agreed on one thing, and that is the land is everything that God said it is. It is a fruitful land flowing with milk and honey. But there were 10 spies that came back and they said, because of the circumstances, because of the size of the people living there, because of their, the strength of their fortified cities, because of the walls that surround them, because of their military, there is no way we can overcome them. Yes, the land is everything that God says, but there's no way that we can overcome them. There were only two men that stood up and said that, no, we can take that land. The masses were going to kill those two men and then God came down and interceded and protected them. And he said, I am going to kill this entire generation because of their unbelief. He had showed them ten signs in Egypt. He had shown them multiple signs in the wilderness already. And he says, because you have failed to take this land, the, this generation, the Exodus generation, the generation that came out of Egypt, shall not get into the land. Anyone 20 years and old and upward from today, anyone 20 years old and upward is not getting into the land because 20 years old was the, the year that they went to war. 20 years old was that, that full adulthood. 20 years old and upward, they're not getting into the land. There are only two men that he said are going to get in, Joshua and Caleb. It says in Numbers chapter 14 that the people, once God spoke this, the people felt so bad that they repented. They repented and they tried to take the land. And Moses warned them, don't try to take the land because God has already withdrawn from you that land. That which has been offered to you has now been withdrawn. The offer has been rescinded. The offer of the land. They said, no, we'll take the land. They go in and they get torn up by the, by the Canaanites. Tear them up. And then they go back into the wilderness. They say, you're right, we can't take it anymore. They sought it with tears. They couldn't get it back. They sought it with tears. They could not get it back. This is the analogy that he uses. 
with the Hebrews, in, in the epistle to the Hebrews. He says, you can't go dabbling in this. You can't go back into your old temple and do these sacrifices and think that you can come back. You've got to have this cut and this partition. This has to be firm here. There is a third instance where this same sort of thing occurred, though not referenced heavily in the epistle to the Hebrews. That instance was, was with Manasseh. Manasseh had spilled, king, the king in Jerusalem, Manasseh, was a wicked man. He had spilled so much blood in Jerusalem. God said, that's it. The Babylonians are going to come and wipe out this city. Manasseh is taken. Manasseh repents. Manasseh repents, it says. But still... Once he said the city is going to be taken, it was taken. It was all over. There was no repentance that was going to rescind that anymore. They were going to spend 70 years in captivity. He says that is exactly what happened when Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, when we've covered that before in this class, Matthew chapter 12 was the unpardonable sin. And it was exactly what Jesus said it is, unpardonable. The unpardonable sin was saying that Jesus has a Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, that Jesus is not the Messiah, but he's actually demon-possessed. They're saying that he is demon-possessed, but that was only for that generation. You will see in, in Matthew chapter 12, when the condemnation comes, he says over and over again, this generation, this generation, this generation. And then he proclaimed upon them, destruction would come upon that generation. They said, and they, they even said it, when he was being crucified, they said, let it come upon us and up, upon our children. And it was okay. You wanted it. 70 AD, it will come. It will kill you and your children in 70 AD. The destruction would come. There was no repenting that could stop that judgment that was going to come. Individuals could be saved out of that. Individuals, by receiving Jesus, could be saved out of that. But the penalty that was going to come upon the nation could never be changed. That was going to happen, and it happened in 70 AD. That's what he says. He says, you can't dabble in this thing because if you want to go back under, Ju uh, under Judaism, here it is, 64 to 66 AD, the onslaught of the Romans are going to surround that city in about 68 AD, and that's it. Nobody's getting out of that city. You go into Jerusalem and start doing your sacrifice, you're going to get trapped in that city, and you're going to die. And the confusion comes in the, in, in the epistle to the Hebrews with this word, save and salvation. So, so if I talk about uh, uh, being saved in this class, you think about Jesus coming into your life and you giving your heart to Jesus. Now, if I say to you, my friend was at the swimming pool yesterday and he was in the middle of the swimming pool swimming and the lifeguard helped him and he was saved. You wouldn't think, oh, the lifeguard went and jumped in and swam up to him and started sharing the gospel with him. <laughs> you wouldn't think that. From that context, you would say, you must mean physical salvation. He was physically saved. In the context of the book of Hebrews, the word saved and salvation is wholeheartedly in the context of physical saving. He says the only way you can be saved is if you do not go back into Judaism. Because if you go back into Judaism, you're going to be in that, in that, uh, in Jerusalem when it's going to be surrounded and you can't get out. 
and you're going to go back under this and you are going to die. It is totally physical salvation. It is not loss of spiritual salvation. So you're going to lose out on this earth. Plus, he talks about how you will lose out in the kingdom to come. Much of what awaits us is not here on earth. It's a reward in heaven that Jesus spoke about. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I I, I would have said it. I would have told you. In my house are many mansions. This is what He has for us. He has riches for us awaiting us. He says, you're going to lose out on all of that. This is what He's talking about. This word save and salvation. This is what confuses believers in these passages. And so this is, this is the context of what's happening. They were going to forfeit so much had they, had they, had they gone back into Ju- uh, Judaism. The principle is an ongoing truth. Unbelief that leads to disobedience will bring discipline. Unbelief that leads to, dis- uh, to, to disobedience leads to discipline. The result is not loss of position, but loss of blessing. It's not loss of your salvation, but is loss of blessing. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, it says, They heard the same word that we heard, but it was no value to them because they did not combine it with faith. The word that they heard was of no value to them because they did not combine it with faith. That which we hear, we must combine it with acts of faith. This is what's upon us. And so he continues to bring us into this understanding. So, so he uses the Gospels also as a background. As it said in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 through 45. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 through 45. The Gospels lay the groundwork from the un- unpardonable sin. There were three things that the rabbis said that only Messiah will be able to do. And you can read about it in their writings, which still exist today in the Mishnah and the Talmud. Three things that the rabbis said only Messiah will be able to do. One of them was to heal a Jewish leper because from the time the law had been given until that day, no Jewish leper had ever been healed. From the time the law had been fully given, had been finished, till that day, the, the, no Jewish leper had ever been healed. There was Miriam, the sister of Moses. She was a Jewish leper. God healed her, but the law had not yet been completed. Moses gave lots of the law after that. Uh, Naaman was a leper, but he wasn't a Jew. He was a Syrian. And so they have two and a half chapters in, in the book of Leviticus on what a priest should do with a Jewish leper. And no Jewish leper had ever been healed. So by the time the first generation had come around, the rabbis were saying, only the Messiah will be able to heal a Jewish leper. And so what he does, he heals a Jewish leper. What does he tell them to do? Does he say... Go, go and just start praising God. He says, go back and show yourself to the priests. Now the priests can start doing what they've been wanting to do for, for, for uh, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. They've been wanting to exercise this. Now, now show them. And then what he does, when, and, and, it, and it was a long, drawn-out process. It was a process that took months of verifying the cleansing, the leprous cleansing. They had to go through sacrifices in the temple and months of work for the priests to deal with this. And you know what Jesus then does? Then he ends up, and he, the, the, the Pharisees had given him a hard time, so as he's leaving Jerusalem, he heals ten lepers, and he sends them all back at once. You know, and This is what he did. Now that over, each one of these guys is a huge amount of work to have to deal with now. That's what he did. Another thing that they said that, that only the Messiah 
would be able to do was to cast, was to heal a man born blind, was to heal a man who had been born blind. Nobody had been healed of blindness who had been born blind. And that's why when Jesus heals the man who was born blind, there was an inquiry. There was the Pharisaic inquiry and he had to testify, yes, I really was blind because they had to establish, were you really born blind? So they called in the mother and father and they say, yes, this is our son. He was born blind. That's why the inquiry was going on because they were amazed. Only Messiah would be able to do this. And you see when he does it, the people say, only Messiah could do this. The rabbis taught us this. Could anyone do this if he were not the Messiah? Why would they say that? Because the rabbis had taught them that. And the third thing was, only the Messiah would be able to cast a demon out of somebody if that person were mute, if that person couldn't speak. Because the way Jewish exorcism worked is you would have the demon identify himself from the person who is there. And so Jesus sometimes did that. Not all the time. Sometimes he just cast the demons out without a word. But remember there was a man, Jesus said, Jesus said, what is your name? And the man said, we are legion for we are many. Why did Jesus, that is the typical Jewish exorcism way. You identify the demon, you get his name and in, and you cast him out by name. Jesus showed that he could do that. And so their saying was, if a man is mute, he can't speak. He can never identify himself, so you could never cast him out. And Jewish exorcism was active in those days because you remember, if you've read the book of Acts, the sons of Sceva, the seven sons of Sceva were doing Jewish exorcism. They were casting out demons, and then they tried casting them out in the name of Paul. And the demon said, Paul we know, and Jesus we know, but who are you? And the, and, and the man just jumped on them and beat them all up and sent them running away naked. Just pull the robes off of them. So, so this was Jewish exorcism. So when Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 heals a man who is mute and casts out a demon from that man, the Jewish crowd again says, this must be the Messiah. Because only the Messiah can do this. The rabbis taught us this. And the rabbis, instead of accepting that, yes, indeed, this is the third demonstration now, of what only Messiah would be able to do, he is now done. They said, well, really, he only did it by Beelzebul because he's king of all demons. That's how he, he casted them out. And that's when Jesus gave the f- famous words, uh, kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And he proclaimed upon them the unpardonable sin, which is exactly what he said it is. It is unpardonable. Individuals could be saved out of it, but as a nation, this is not something that you and I can commit today. So if somebody comes to you as they've come to me, they say, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I say, calm down, relax. You can't commit the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin can only be committed when Jesus is in your presence and you say he has a demon and he's demon possessed and you deny his messiahship when he's physically in your presence. Did all of that occur to you? Was he physically in your presence and you denied his messiahship on the basis of his being demon-possessed? And the answer for me that they've told me has always been no. So don't worry, you've not committed the unpardonable sin. That was for that generation and Jesus said over and over again, lest you get confused. He says, this generation, this generation. And that's what they were under and that's what they were facing and that's why he warned them. The leadership in Israel rejected the Messiahship of Jesus on the basis of his being demon-possessed, and that was going to bring on the 70 A.D. judgment. And that's what was unpardonable. The kingdom will be re-offered 
to a future generation, and that will be the generation living in the Great Tribulation, and that's discussed in Matthew's chapter 24 and 25. The kingdom is going to be re-offered to the Jewish nation, and that is the tribulation generation. And as we read in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, that that's when many Jews will come to the Lord, when the kingdom is re-offered to them. That's when it's going to be re-offered. Now we are living under this time when God grants this to many people. But as a nation, as a nation, Israel is not going to come back in mass to the Lord until we see the fulfillment of what's written about in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and Daniel, the last three chapters in the book of Revelation. It talks very clearly about this. That's when it's going to be reoffered. So that is the message. And then if you look in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 38 through 41, he talks about the need to be baptized in order to be saved. Baptism doesn't save you spiritually. Baptism does not save you spiritually. But what he's doing is he's saying baptism is going to save you physically. Because once you are baptized, that's going to cut you off from ever being able to go back into Judaism. Because if you were baptized, you weren't getting back in. It is a firm thing. And this is why we must be baptized. We must be baptized. It is a testimony. Testimony to those on earth, to those in in the heavens, to those in the spiritual realm. Baptism, after one believes in the Lord, is an important thing. You say, well, it's kind of embarrassing. Be embarrassed. Be embarrassed and follow the Lord. All right? Many times you're called upon to do things that are personally embarrassing, where the Lord is prompting you to speak to somebody. The Lord is prompting you to take a position. This is part of Christian life, is walking in embarrassment because it's no longer about me. It is about Him who gave Himself for me. This is what it's about. And so you be baptized. And you say, well, how do I do it? What you do is you go right up to, to one of the leaders in the church. Before the church, you say, i, I got to be baptized. Or you can go right up to them when they have the altar call at the end. You're coming up and you say, I just am here to be baptized. And they will get you on a list. They will make sure that you're saved by asking you a certain number of questions. And the next week or the week after, you're getting dunked under the water. It is a very simple deal. You go to other churches, you got to go through six months of classes to be baptized. Here it is just, you know, boom, in and out. You just, you, just, you, just, you just get baptized very, very quickly. As it was in the scriptures, people would get saved and boom, they were baptized. There were no six months of training here. Baptism is an important thing. So I urge you to be baptized. I urge you to be baptized. And this is what he's talking about in this book. And so, so, so it, it gives you, I talked about the occasion and the purpose of the book. This is what it's all about. And his methodology, he draws in parallels, again, between the good and that which is better. And he's going he's to use several portions from the Old Testament uh, um, uh, uh, to do that. So, anyway, I think, I think I covered all the topics that were there. And then, and then the book is, is divided into two sections. He's going to talk, in the first half, he's going to talk about, uh, a ch- in chapter 1 through chapter 10, 18, he's going to talk about the sun. Uh, Jesus being the Son, being the greatest. And then in, the, in, in chapter 10 through chapter 13, he's going to talk about applications. And the theme of the book is the superiority of the Son of God. Okay, so that gives you the synopsis of Hebrews. And now when we get into it, you'll have a context in which to understand what the author's dealing with here. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the Word of God. Lord, thank you for the truth of the Word of God. And Lord, I pray for these young people. Lord, I pray for those here who have not been baptized. 
And Lord, I pray that they wouldn't mess around with this, but that they would get baptized as Your Word calls them to do. And Father, I pray for those here who have thought about going back into the world and thinking that they they could just repent again. Father, I pray that through this book, You would warn them about the dangers of that. That is like trying to have Christ re-crucified. Father, I pray that they would be warned about this and what they will lose out here on earth and in the kingdom to come by doing that. And Father, I pray for those here who do not know You, who what I was speaking was just like a foreign language to them. Father, I pray that You'd open up their hearts. Lord, open up their hearts to the truth of Jesus Christ and draw them. Lord, I pray for these young people that they would have good lives, that they would have hope in Jesus Christ. Father, that that even as as they're at this age where they're going to be making decisions about their careers and who they're going to marry and how they're going to raise their families, and after they make those decisions, it's so hard to turn back. Father, I pray that right here at this cusp of their lives, that they would make a decision to follow Christ wholeheartedly and never turn back, lest they lose tremendous blessings here on earth. And as Esau, though they will try to seek it back with tears, so much will have already been lost. And they will lose out on blessings in the future too. Father, I pray that you protect these young people, that you give them good lives and good protection. For the glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen.